Welcome back to Everyday with Jesus, reading through the Bible in a year, which you can find the plan at csbible.com. We are on week 13, which, um, Aaron, do you know uh, what day uh, of the year that would be? Yeah, I believe, and my math could be wrong, but I believe it's day 84. Well, actually, it's day 85. Well, we can't do math, but we're not here for math. We're here for the Bible, am I right? I'm not a numbers guy. I'm a Bible guy. Yeah, amen. Speaking of numbers. (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's the book we're in. What a great segue. Yeah. So we'll be finishing the book of Numbers today and getting just a tiny sample of Deuteronomy. Which also includes numbers. If you think about the name, it's Deut, right? Deuteronomy. So Deutero, second. That's the number. And then namas, law. So the second giving of the law, we might say. Is that where the king would have to write the law when he came into Well, I think that's in Deuteronomy 18. And I don't know if that's the entirety of the law or just the portion relating to the stipulations for the king. Okay. I, I guess we'll get there then. We should stay in numbers for now. Yeah. When we get there, I have a funny anecdote from one of my classes where a guy presented a paper on um, whether or not God approved of a king for Israel. And I misspoke earlier. It's Deuteronomy 17 that these stipulations occur, not Deuteronomy 18. That's all right. We're not big on numbers here, so we'll, we'll overlook it. Um, so I guess to start off with a question that I had... Um, It's near the beginning of our Numbers reading. Uh, In Numbers 28, there are several different offerings spoken about. Daily, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, Passover offerings. We've got offerings for the feast weeks, offerings for the Feast of Trumpets, uh, you know, getting into chapter 29. I guess my initial question is... um, what was the scale on which these um, offerings and sacrifices were made? Because it gave specific numbers of animals and this, that, and the other that had to be offered. Was that just that number of animals and offering for the entire nation of Israel? Or was it broken down by tribe? Or I guess I was just curious. I'm like, what is the scale of these offerings and sacrifices being given? I think that's a great question, Matthew. And as with so many things in this podcast, I will offer a tentative answer, but I could be really, really wrong. And I think in sections where it's not clear, um, it seems that it's whatever the exact prescription is for the whole assembly of the Israelites. So it's not like um, in chapter 28 where you would offer two unblemished year old lambs is a regular burnt offering that each tribe would do this. Um, but it seems like this is perhaps either in this situation, what each individual would do like individual family unit, or in other cases where the high priest would do this perhaps for all of Israel. And again, I would direct you to a study Bible, which clearly I have not consulted in preparation for this podcast. In chapter 30, they talk about vows for men and women. What situations are these people in? What circumstances where they would be making vows like this, where they need these stipulations to decide when they should be kept? And Wait, which part was that? 
chapter 30? 30. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about the vows. Because it, <clears throat> again, I mean, it was a little bit vague. I mean, it's kind of like if a guy makes a vow, you made a vow, you're stuck to it. But, you know, if a woman made one, depending on her affiliation or connection to a man, he could essentially revoke it and the Lord would forgive her. But like, what are these, yeah, what are these vows that they're making to, you know, what people are they making them? Yeah, I I, I would venture a guess uh, that, well, certainly it's a vow to the Lord. That's what's stipulated in 30 verse 2. But the vow, the major vow that we've encountered so far is the Nazarite vow. And uh, so perhaps there are others that are articulated that aren't recorded in these texts. But if a woman had taken this Nazarite vow and perhaps had pledged herself to this vow for a certain number of time, um, the then she would carry it out unless her husband became aware of it and prohibited it. I I think some of the challenges in reading this is sometimes we might want to say, well, it's really complicated to figure out what the timeless truth is here, so let's make it about gender roles or something like that. I don't think that's what we should do. I think we need to recognize this is a very clear instance where this is covenant legislation for the Israelite people, and this small part contributes to the larger picture, but I don't think we need to try to find a timeless truth in every single line of these verses where now we have a principle for our own lives or something like that. Did that answer your question? It didn't answer my question at all. I'm trying to figure I'm out... I'm like, sorry. What, what? No, that's fine. It, I, I agree with what you said. I, I'm just trying to figure out... Okay, so I agree. So the Nazarite vow, that makes sense because we've encountered that before. I tend to think that there were other types of vows that people were making. It, it seems like... Well, certainly. So, yeah. so I'm just for, trying to figure out, is it is there a, is it a crisis situation where someone is in a hard place and they say, you know, God, if, if this happens, or you know, then I'll... Well, I mean, one on? example that I would maybe give is perhaps there's a young woman who has vowed to the Lord, my first child I will dedicate toward to service in, in your sanctuary. And she made this vow prior to marriage, and her husband finds out about it. And there's a way for that couple now to make a different decision under this, you know, in this situation where that won't be the case, you know, and she's not breaking her vow to the Lord. It's just entering into a different situation where this vow can be reconsidered. We, we definitely have evidence of people making those kinds of vows after they've not been able to conceive for a long time. But I think, you know, probably in our world, it's hard to imagine all of the kinds of vows they might make or why, but that's certainly one of them. So we get to chapter 31, and we see the slaughter of Midian. What did you guys think of this chapter? It seemed like it was kind of a warm-up for conquering the people in the land of Canaan. Yeah, I found uh, chapter 31, I guess, interesting. I mean, uh, you know, there's decent detail. Um, They just immediately kill all the men, um, but then they're kind of reprimanded for not killing essentially everybody, uh, but they end up killing all of the male children and all of the women who had known a man, uh, as the saying goes. But the younger women were spared. 
So, I mean, I don't know. When you really think about it, I'm like, that's that's a lot of slaughtering. Um, God, uh, you know, in one way or the other, kind of commanded it. I mean, it was. It seemed like it was part of his plan. Aaron, help me out here. We need you to throw some more uh, thoughts at this. Yeah, this is, this is really, really tough to talk about. And um, on the one hand, the very simplistic answer is, we have to trust that the righteous and good God knew what he was doing. And if we know everything that God knows, we would have commanded the exact same thing. So I think on one level, it's okay for us just to fall back on that. If we knew everything God knows, if we see the world the way God sees it, we would affirm everything that he commanded here. But that answer doesn't take us very far or keep us for the long haul. Um, and this, these sorts of accounts are, of course, the, the kinds of texts in the Bible that uh, cynics or genuine doubters or just people who look at it are troubled by. And, and I think we have to be okay with the fact that it's unsettling to us. Um, I, I think, I hope at least, down the road, this is something that I can spend a significant amount of time studying and researching because I it, it is somewhat troubling to me. Um, how is it that you can command the slaughter of uh, men and women and then later in, in these texts, children as well? And um, one of the things that I'm helped by is putting this in its ancient Near Eastern context. So whenever we read the Bible, we want to think about the spheres of history literature, and theology. So what's the theology that's being communicated? What's the literary structure or makeup of the text? And then what's the history behind it? And when we think of the history behind this text, pretty much everyone believed in what we would call the council of the gods, okay? So there's kind of a main god who's like the chief god, and there are other gods who assemble before him. And when you read in Psalms, it'll talk about the divine assembly and these sorts of things. And the idea was that gods are generally territorial in that they go to war against the other gods and try to take over that other god's territory. But the way that they are fighting in, in the realm of the gods is expressed by the action of the humans on earth. So, for example, someone who worships Marduk might fight Yahweh, for example, and the way that that fight is carried out is through Marduk's followers and Yahweh's followers. So that, so that fight will happen on earth, and it often involves territory or a particular piece of land. So what I think is being pictured here, or how we should understand it with this ancient Near Eastern worldview— is that Yahweh's followers are fighting against probably Baal's followers or whatever their false gods are. And uh, as those gods are fighting in heaven, Yahweh's rulership is being exercised and his authority is being proved as Israel defeats the followers of the false god. And then when we move beyond that that history to the literature, What's expressly said in verse 16 is that these Midianites are the ones who, at Balaam's advice, 
incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in Peor in the Peor incident. Uh, so they've incited them against Yahweh. So I think we really are seeing this cosmic divine warfare that's now embodied in warfare between humans. And if we can understand it in that way, it at least puts us in that cultural context, uh, even if we are inclined to look at it differently based in, on, on our setting. Uh, now, of course, this raises some questions for very conservative or um, maybe uh, biblicists, we might say, or I, I don't know the best way to say it without being pejorative, but, but people who would say, uh, because we believe in one God, there are no other gods. And I think we want to say there are other gods that are not gods, but there are genuine spiritual forces. So I maybe maybe this puts me in a weird position, but I believe in the divine council. I think there are other spiritual realities at play, and I think there is a cosmic warfare. I think there is a fight, as the Apostle Paul says, against um, spiritual powers, you know, these uh, the, the Unseen Realm. So I would recommend that book by that name, Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, if you're interested in this. I've also written a couple papers on this that I'd be happy to share with people, but I think we should not totally abandon this idea that there are other spiritual forces that are in combat with God, and at least at this stage, the way that that combat took shape was primarily over pieces of land and the expression of one God's power over the rest of the gods came through the defeat of another army in battle. Matthew, I know that you have been thinking about these texts for some time, particularly about the cities of refuge. As you're reading these texts, what strikes you and what are you thinking about it? I thought there was a lot of good comments made about the, I mean, the whole cities of refuge, refuge passage. Um, yeah, we want I, to clarify: this is not cities of refuse, but cities of refuge. All right. Anyways, um, where they speak about people, whether they killed somebody on purpose or on accident, um, the main part that I found interesting was. Um, Verse 31, it says, Moreover, you shall not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, um, but he shall be put to death. And you shall uh, not accept a ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. Um, and then it says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood shed in it. So basically, I was thinking, and maybe this is too much of a stretch, I don't know, but like for current day, it's like, if you think about criminals that don't, that, you know, things are taken way too lenient on them and they get let back out in society. It's like, well, what happens? They generally repeat, offend, kill somebody else or do something else horrible. And it just, like it, like this says, it, it pollutes society essentially when you don't execute proper justice. 
I guess. That's what I was thinking. Did you, does that make any sense? Did you have any thoughts along that, those lines? Yeah, I think so. I, I think these things are complicated and we need to place it within the covenantal progression. So within the Noahic covenant, um, lethal or uh, lethal punishment is prescribed, right? Um, and here there are additional facets of that lethal punishment that are added, including the possibility of safety for someone who actually did commit a murder, whether intentionally or not. Um, obviously, there are more clarifications. And I think what we start to see is actually that these things are really complicated, and what justice actually is, is complicated. So we need to try to step back a little bit and realize the complexity and recognize that there's not a simple solution for these things. More than that, we want to look at our own society and say that we are not Israel. We're not going to apply this directly, but there may be principles that are really helpful as we start to understand what true justice really is. Uh, But people are going to disagree on these things. I haven't really clearly worked these things out, but I want to at least say that as we apply those principles, we want to understand we're in a different situation where it's probably possible to have long-term incarceration instead of um, the the death penalty is necessary. Uh, we're in a situation where not only can we gain more facts like DNA and other things that relate to these circumstances, but also that those facts can be distorted. So it's actually even more complicated, I think, in some ways as we look at all of this evidence to where people have been put on death row because the way that DNA is measured is so hyper-specific that it can be DNA that's transferred from something else. So it's not super, super clear on how the death penalty should be executed um, or the process leading up to it in our own day. I I just think we have to be somewhat open-handed about this. And this is a change of view for me, at least. So um, two summers ago, I was arguing with this guy who was like, uh, the death penalty should never be, you know, enforced. And I was, I, I won the debate in telling this guy, you don't have God's sense of justice. But as I look back on that, I am thinking, ah, this is really, really tough. So it's hard to know what to take away from this other than as God identifies a people for his name, and as he shows them what justice looks like, he adds more categories than he did in the Noahic covenant for mercy. I've talked about this at some length in a Bible class somewhere. I don't even remember the context, but I know I talked about this at some length somewhere. The death penalty? Yeah. It was in this previous... Bible class series, wasn't it? It was Oh, in the biblical theology one. Yeah. Yeah. There's one on the Noahic Covenant. Maybe it's Noahic Covenant Part Two uh, or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. So if you're really interested in this, I'm not the best source on this topic, but I would recommend that as a starting place. I would also recommend Richard Hayes, The Moral Vision of the New Testament is sort of an ethics book that would give some guidance on these issues. 
Does that help, Matthew, or do you think that it's unhelpful? I mean, it kind of helps. Um, I mean, my personal view or uh, starting point is I I think I would be a little bit more harsh and strict with punishments, or at least like on a societal level. Yeah, and and I think this is tough, right? Because we want to say ultimately we would all maybe agree that Christ is our ultimate city of refuge. And as we connect to him, we find refuge. And as we look at individuals, we want to say uh, the the ultimate thing that you need for justice is not the death penalty, but for you to tie into the justice of God that was displayed as justice and mercy meet at Christ's crucifixion and then resurrection. And so ultimately, we want we want murderers to become not murderers. I think Paul talks about this when he talks about such were some of you. You know, we we want to offer people refuge in Jesus, even if they've committed these sorts of crimes, which blot out the image of God on planet Earth. But it's really tough because we also want to say the kingdom of God has not fully arrived, and there are people not finding refuge in Jesus, and. Every person, even the most progressive humanitarian, would say there are some crimes where the death penalty should be carried out. So I give special attention to this in that Bible class because a couple of guys in Oklahoma who were on death row, there were some you know last-minute things going on there, and I think one of them was executed. I don't recall, but um, I'd just point you to that Bible class lesson. Where, where I talk about that at length. Well, normally at this point in our podcast episodes, we would be transitioning to the New Testament reading for the week. But what you might not know is that as we record, we also interject a lot of other conversations. And sometimes these last for a really, really long time. And we have been together for two hours and 18 minutes. And even though that's not going to be reflected in the podcast, Uh, We have spent time talking and talking about really important things. But what that means is, as we're recording now at 1018 at night, we are going to end the episode here. In, In our next episode, I will talk about Luke 1 through the reading for this week and the next week, because it is genuinely important, and we want to talk about that. Uh. And you might hear this and think, wow, what what a waste. These guys got together and recorded a podcast, and they didn't talk about what they wanted to. And, and maybe that's how you think about the conversations you have with other people when you're reading the Bible. But I think one of the great things about reading the Bible together is it does spark these other conversations that lead you into a kind of openness with each other and vulnerability that you wouldn't share with other people. And we were able to have one of those conversations tonight. And and I would just say, as you study the Bible with people, be open to those kind of conversations that you wouldn't have with other people. And just as we had one of those tonight, and we aren't going to share that with you, um, it cuts down some of the things that your schedule might lead you to talk about. And that's okay, because ultimately, as we read the Bible together, we want to know God together as a community, as we know one another better, and press forward in our relationships for the glory of God. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To find out more, you can visit our website, resurrectionmn.org.